This morning we return in our study to the book of Romans, so we'll invite you, congregation, to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and we'll begin our reading at verse 16. But our scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the middle of verse 17 through verse 27, and we'll read God's Word this morning under the heading of Hope for the Suffering. Hope for the Suffering from Romans chapter 8. Hope for the suffering, beginning in verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And here is our Scripture lesson. Provided we suffer with Him. In order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here ends the reading of God's Word this morning. Well, my most dear friends, there are endless privileges to being God's children. We learned last week that God has taken us, who by nature are children of wrath, and He has raised us up to His adopted sons and daughters by grace. And He, moreover, dignifies us with the same graces that He dignifies Jesus with. Jesus has the Spirit, and so we are given the Spirit. Jesus has an intimacy with the Father. He calls Him Abba Father. And so we can call Him Abba Father. Jesus is an heir of the throne, the heir of heaven, so we are heirs with God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. But on the heels of all of these blessings, Coming up quickly after Paul elaborates on all of the good things we are given as God's children, he tells us what we can expect as God's children in this life. That if we are heirs with Him, look what Paul says in verse 17, we will also suffer with Him. And we will also be glorified. With him. What I want to consider with you today is that subject of suffering and glory. 
You see, it's obvious from Scripture and experience that God never promises the absence of suffering in this life. God never once said in the Bible that our lives would be easy and peaceful. That our lives would be safe and healthy and prosperous. But Paul says in verse 17 that it's actually the reverse. To be with Christ means we are certain to experience danger and hardship, turmoil, ill health, and loss. But let us not be glib this morning What Paul is saying here is that we are certain to encounter the most significant trial to our faith. Suffering. I don't know each and every one of you in this room. I don't know every aspect of your life. But I know this. You have all suffered. And we all will suffer. Some difficulties are light and momentary. Here today and gone tomorrow. Some last for a season. Other troubles reoccur and abate cyclically. Some afflictions are chronic. Some woes worsen progressively, bringing pain and then disability into our lives. And some suffering arrives with the inescapable finality. Maybe the death of a dream, the death of a loved one, or maybe even your own death and dying. All of us will experience trauma in this life. Yet Paul reminds us in verse 24 that you were saved in hope. There is a not yet aspect to the Christian life. That for the Christian, the best is yet to come. And you see, the Bible in in many ways is the book of suffering. It tells us the origin of suffering, Genesis 3 and the fall of man, but it doesn't end there. It takes us all the way to the end of suffering. And how suffering will be defeated on that last day in Revelation 21. And if you are suffering this morning, in whatever season of life you may be, whatever the situation is, this is what Paul wants to draw your eyes to. That your God is not only aware of your suffering, but He has entered into suffering. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. And promises, listen to me this morning, He promises to transform your suffering into glory. He knows. He has experienced. And He will transform your suffering. And it's in light of the cross we too can say we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, that's suffering, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's glory. For this light momentary affliction, that suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
our suffering in this present life, Paul teaches, in more than one place, not just Romans 8, will be outweighed by the future glory of heaven. That's our theme for our time together this morning. The sufferings of this present life will be outweighed by the future glories of heaven. I want to show you this in three points. Our first point, verses 17 and 18, are suffering with Christ. Our second point, verses 19 to 29 or 25, preparations for glory. And then verses 26 and 27, God's help for the hurting. And so first we want to consider our suffering with Christ. You see, Paul's immediate purpose here in Romans 8, verse 17 is to give the believers in Rome a proper view of their present sufferings. This does not exclusively refer to persecution, but when Paul says present sufferings, he means all the sufferings believers endure from Jesus' first coming and to His second coming. So that, of course, includes persecution, but it also includes sickness. It includes death. It includes cancer. It includes disappointment. It includes disability. And notice that Paul doesn't minimize those trials. He doesn't say, well, your sufferings are they're pretty bad, but not as bad as the Galatians. Or as bad as the Christians in Colossae. No, he doesn't minimize them. Instead, he weighs up them accurately. He reckons with the full force of suffering. But he says there is something greater to which they need to look. The glory of God to come. And nowhere do we see this suffering and looking to glory better than in the life of Jesus Christ. We are called, Paul says, look with me at verse 17, to suffer with Him, referring to Jesus. And the life of Christ can be defined as a life of suffering. It was Isaiah who prophesied of Jesus in the Old Testament that He would be the suffering servant. Isaiah calls Jesus the man of sorrows. And when you look at His life, don't we see this to be true? Every aspect of Jesus' life was marked not by privilege, but by adversity. Consider that when He was born, He was born to an unmarried woman. What we would call today a single mom betrothed to a poor carpenter. He endured an ignoble birth. The shame of being born to a single woman in that culture. He endured shame. Consider the poverty Christ was born into. Born not in a hospital room or even in His own household. Born surrounded by animals in a cattle stall. Two chapters later in Luke, when His parents bring an offering to the temple which was prescribed in the Old Testament, they bring the cheapest offering they could bring. Even in Jesus' ministry, even He was the Lord of glory. He says there was no place to lay His head. Matthew 8. Jesus endured poverty. He was hated by the Jews and betrayed by His countrymen. That's social rejection. 
In the early Gospels, Joseph takes a prominent place and then is inexplicably no longer mentioned. And when Christ is on the cross, He says to John, John, behold your mother, and mother, behold John, leading us to believe that Joseph is dead. He experienced the sting of death of a loved one. As He hung on that cross, He was forsaken by His friends. That's betrayal. He suffered at the hands of an unjust political system. And at the end of His life, He's beaten and tortured and crucified. That's physical abuse and murder. Have you ever gone through a particular trial in your life and someone says, I know how you feel, and they don't? Jesus does. He can identify with those who suffer today. Again, the prophet Isaiah says, surely He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Not only that He can sympathize with those who are suffering, suffering, but He has actually carried in His person and borne suffering Himself. Jesus... God has experienced suffering with us in His humanity. And no one chooses suffering, right? There's no sadists in the room who say, I like pain. But the Bible says Jesus chose to suffer. How could He do that? One of my favorite verses in the book of Hebrews gives answer to this question. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. That is, that in all of Christ's sufferings, They began to fade into insignificance when He compared the glory of heaven. When Jesus considered the crown of thorns, He cast His eyes to the promise of a crown of glory. When His soul shuddered at the thought of the crowds crying out, crucify Him, crucify Him, He reminded reminded Himself of the throng that would surround His throne and worship Him. Christ knew that every suffering He endured would be wiped away in glory. Believer, you need to hear this this morning. You do not suffer alone. We are called to suffer with Him, but also to be glorified with Him. You know, the person who writes this was no stranger to suffering himself. Paul suffered a lot. He is said to have endured beatings, imprisonment, lashing, stoning, shipwreck, hunger, thirst, toil, sleeplessness, anxiety. In Paul's life, we're told he endured plague and famine and war and earthquakes and cataclysm and saw injustices that ravaged the earth. And Paul says, when I consider the glory that is to come, it is a blip on the radar. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not being worth 
compared with the glory that is revealed to us. In the Christian life, suffering now, glory later. Paul says, when I put, all, put it all on the scale, I put the beatings, I put the sicknesses, I put the prison time, I put the abuse, I put the shame on the scale, on one side of the scale, and I put God's glory that He has for me on the other side of the scale. His glory outweighs them all. A servant is not greater than his master. See, something you can be guaranteed of in your life is that you will experience trauma. You will go through hard times. We will all experience suffering. The Christian is not exempted from suffering. Paul even says in 1 Thessalonians 3, the Christian is predestined to suffer. Let no one be disturbed by affliction. You have been destined for this, Paul says. We are not given an exemption to life's trials. What the Christian is given is a promise in in your trials. And the promise is this, that God will work every single thing in your life, even your suffering, for good. Every single thing. The darkest thing. The worst thing. The deepest trial is not too strong for God to work it out. This is seen all throughout the Bible. Joseph said, you meant it for evil. The throwing him in the pit. The selling him into Egypt. The uh, Potiphar's wife betraying him. But God meant it for good. We see in the book of Acts that it was the persecution of the church that forced the Gospel into the world. We are Christians today because of persecution. James says, consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul is teaching us these exact same truths. If you join with Christ in suffering in this life, you are promised to join Him in glory. And God will work it out. And it will be a glory that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of God, man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now there is a great difference between Jesus' suffering and your suffering. Paul will continue in Romans to address suffering In verse 20, he will talk about futility. In verse 21, he will talk about corruption. In verse 35, he will talk about tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and sword. But what does Paul say about his suffering in verse 39? 
that no matter how much I suffer, I will never be separated from Christ's love. You see, in Christ's suffering, He endured God's wrath. Every time He suffered, it was because God was pouring out His wrath for you and me upon Jesus. But when a Christian suffers, it is never wrath, it is always love. You may be asked to drink a bitter cup, but you need to know this morning that there is no curse in that cup. There is no wrath. There is no hell. Our bitter providences are only schools for heavenly training. There's another difference. When Jesus suffered, He suffered alone. In Gethsemane, He asked His disciples to pray, but they fell asleep. When He hung upon the cross at Golgotha, He was alone. All forsook Him. But when we suffer, look what Paul says in verse 17, we suffer with Him. Jesus has said in the Bible to identify with His hurting saints, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? Christian, He is with you in the hospital room. He is with you when tears stain your pillow. He is in the doctor's room when you are given the bad news. He kneels with you beside the grave. This is the promise. Not that you will be exempted from tribulation, but Christ is with you in your tribulation. It is a suffering with Him. But that's not all we're promised in the Gospel. Notice with me the promise of glory. Our second point, preparations from glory. Paul is an interesting man. He speaks much of his sufferings in the New Testament. He says in Philippians 3, verse 10, that of his own sufferings, that I may know him in the power of his resurrections and may share in his sufferings and become like him in death. Notice what Paul is saying here. He is saying, in my sufferings, I am becoming like Jesus. Christian, you need to know this morning that your sufferings have a purpose. Oftentimes, we don't feel it, but our sufferings are the very thing that conform us to the image of Christ. This is why Peter says in one of the most profound verses of the New Testament, rejoice in your suffering. And you say, what? Rejoice in my suffering? I don't like when I get a hangnail, let alone real suffering. But Paul says, Peter, excuse me, says we can rejoice. Not because we enjoy suffering, but because we know that God has a higher purpose in our suffering. Allow me to be a little bold this morning. God's number one concern for you is not to make you happy. God's number one concern for you is to get you into heaven. And we can rejoice even when we suffer because we know that God can use even that to get us there. 
He uses our suffering for good. Our sufferings have a purpose. They prepare us for glory. And by way of analogy, Paul widens his scope from you and me to creation. The whole of creation. Look at verse 19. He says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Stop right there. That word eager longing is very important. It's an interesting word because it literally means the turning of your head. And the idea here in verse 19, that word eager longing, it means to crane your neck. To stand up maybe on your tiptoes. Like you're standing in a crowd of people at the airport and you're waiting for your beloved to get off the plane and so you're craning your neck to try to see them. You're trying to peer over people. Trying to get a glimpse. That's what creation is doing in their eager longing for Jesus. Paul says what creates that eager longing, what creates the desire to see Jesus again, is suffering. The word, the world, excuse me, is enduring suffering like us. In Genesis 3, God not only cursed Adam and Eve for their sin, but remember, He cursed the ground. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth. The fall of, the, of man is also the fall of this world. It was subjected to futility. And allow me to illustrate this this morning. Say you go upstate to northern Michigan and you see the beautiful trees, the beautiful lakes, the hills, the greenery. This time of year, you might even be able to see the beautiful colors. Wow, it's astounding, isn't it? And maybe you're standing on a lake up there enjoying that cool breeze with a cup of coffee. Enjoying God's creation. And you see a doe and her fawn walk out of the forest. And you say, oh, what a beautiful picture. It's incredible. That doe and fawn scampers back off into the forest. Hunters know this. What happens to that doe and fawn? Animals don't die of old age. Maybe a coyote gets the fawn. Maybe a bear, black bear, a wolf or whatever is up there gets the doe. The world, the world is full of cruelty in nature. Our animals are stained with red teeth and red claws. We see this in our world. There are tornadoes and earthquakes and cruelty of nature. Even this world, we are told, is longing for that day when this cruelty will be done with. That's what Isaiah prophesies back in his book 11, verse 6. Remember what he says of heaven? The wolf will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion. The nursing child will play by the serpent's den. Creation is groaning longing, desiring, craning its neck for the return of Christ. Don't miss what Paul is saying here. The trials that you are enduring, the trials that this world endures are instruments in the hands of God. 
But the message of the Bible is that suffering is not unto death. Suffering for the Christian is unto life. That's the analogy of childbirth. The whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but also we. In childbirth, the pain is so intense and so prolonged, I think, that our wives would be driven to despair if it were not for the promise of a child. Am I right, ladies? What makes it worth it is that you are going to have that little one in your arms. Paul is saying that the Christian suffering is not meaningless. It's a productive suffering like that. It produces in us an eternal weight of glory. This week, I came across a wonderful illustration of a missionary who was going through a dark time spiritually and he was going for a walk, asking God the question, why are you allowing me to suffer? And while he was considering this, through the forest, he comes upon a butterfly in its chrysalis, its cocoon. And he's looking at it, and he sees it's suffering, it's struggling, it's in tribulation to try to get out of its cocoon. And so he pulls out his pocket knife, and he helps the butterfly out, slits open the chrysalis. And the creature emerges, and he comes to find out it's actually just deformed. It can't fly. I asked our resident bug expert, Mr. Lackey, who told me that in the cocoon and the struggling of trying to get out, it actually pressurizes the butterfly. If it doesn't have that period of tribulation, the blood will never go into its wings and it will never fly. As he's sitting there looking, this missionary sitting there looking at this deformed creature, he is reminded that tribulation is the very thing that strengthens the butterfly. It is the struggle that puts glory in it. And so, like this creation, we are made strong in Christ. We are made strong in tribulation. As we crane our necks to see Him, He purifies us. He weans us from this world. It is a crucible of suffering. Paul is saying that our suffering has a purpose, and its purpose is to produce in us an eager desire to see the Lord. That is the promise. If you suffer with Him, you will be glorified with Him. It's a package deal. Suffering and glory. I want to pause for a moment this morning. Would you consider with me the glory. Here's a few examples. We are promised, those who suffer are promised a new heavenly home. John 14, verse 2. Those who suffer are promised a glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15. 
Those who suffer are promised a perfected spirit, Romans 8.30. You're promised an eternal reward to reign with Christ, white garments, a permanent relationship, and you are promised that you will see the very face of God Himself. This is what the church fathers called the beatific vision. You will see the face of your King. In the ancient world, very few people would have ever seen the face of a king. And surely a peasant, somebody who's suffering, never would have. Maybe once in a lifetime, somebody would see the king's carriage carrying him down the road, but they would never behold him. But Revelation 22 tells us that those who suffer will one day look upon the very face of God as He sits upon His throne. And this will be the greatest blessing we've ever known. That the Father and the Spirit, though they don't have a corporal body, it says we will see Him. We will have direct, unfettered access to Him. You who love Him by faith now will see Him in heaven. That is better than the streets of gold. That is better than the pearly gates. That is better than fat babies playing hearts on clouds. The glory that will shine from the face of God will be so brilliant there will be no sun on heaven on the new heavens or the new earth. And out of the shining greatness of His glory and the grandeur of God, He will stoop to your level and wipe away every tear. He will make every right wrong. And in that moment, we will see that He has triumphed over every ill and sorrow and we shall bless Him. Paul says, in that hope, we are saved. He is calling you through your deepest sorrow to Himself. Some of you are familiar with Joni Erickson Tata. She had an accident in 1967. She dived off of a raft in her teenage years, and she broke her neck. And she's been paralyzed from the neck down um, ever since, since 1967. And in one of her uh, books, she shares the story where she was at a prayer meeting and the leader asked everyone to get on their knees in prayer. And she began to cry. Not because she couldn't get on her knees, But listen to what she said. She says, I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I will do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful and glorified knees before Jesus. And then I am going to get on my feet and dance before Him. She says, can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives to someone with a spinal cord injury like me? Can you imagine the hope that this gives to a manic depressive? No religion or other philosophy promises new bodies, not just minds and hearts. Only the Gospel of Jesus gives hurting people like me a hope to live. God does not give you trials and suffering apart from the design of ultimate deliverance. 
every futility we endure, every vanity and corruption we experience is given to us to produce hope. A hope of future deliverance. But God does not leave us here without help. Notice, finally, God's help for the hurting. See, the condition of the church has always been one of weakness. Notice with me in verse 26 what Paul says. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Please pay particular attention here that weakness is not in the plural. Did you catch that? It's not plural. It doesn't say weaknesses as if we could make a list. Weakness is in the singular as if it is our defining characteristic in this life. We are weakness. We are weakness because of sinfulness. We are a hurting people on the path to glory. As one of my elders constantly reminds us, there is hurt in every pew. And so we need to pray. Allow me to add here that none of us can live the Christian life without our own prayers and the prayers of others who lift me up, who lift us up to the Father. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I am sure that the prayers of the saints have been the very thing that has gotten me through. When my family and I first moved down here to the United States during the COVID pandemic, so we're the only people at the border, and we finally get to Indiana, and we're not allowed to go back to Canada, I felt very isolated. I was afraid. And I was so comforted when on Sunday morning we went to church for the first time and my pastor had called ahead of time and said, by the way, I have a new SEM student there. And a lady came up to me and said, you're our new SEM student. We've been praying for you. It helped me so much. And congregation, you need to know that your prayers for me are the gas in my tank. You are the wind in my sails. Your prayers encourage me and you are always in mine. Our prayers help one another. But how much more so when God prays for us. God knows the hurt in every pew. He knows the suffering that is going on in your life. And He doesn't merely say, await the redemption of your bodies, but He says, I will help you here and I will help you now. See, the Greek word here, again, is very important for praying for you in your weakness. The picture is actually of somebody grabbing onto something, laying hold of something. The picture is that the Spirit, when He prays for you, lays hold upon you. He is powerfully pulling you along in the Christian life. How comforting this is for people who are weakness. Because there are times when we are emotionally weak. And we're so discouraged. And we lose heart. And we give up praying. Paul says the Spirit perseveres 
on your behalf. You may be physically weak. You may be too tired to pray. You may be too exhausted, too spent, too done with it all. The Spirit is interceding for you. What this means is that in your trials and sufferings, it won't last forever. He will pull you through. Even if you deal with this trial for the rest of your life, it is but a moment that will usher you into everlasting glory. God will never abandon the work of His hands. And so in conclusion, may the Lord carry you home by the power of your Spirit, by the power of His Spirit as you suffer with Christ in this present age. The cloud may seem dark. You may continue in this life, but you may continue in this life in the light of the hope of glory. And know this, when the darkness is at its greatest, and when the trouble is at its highest, and when your hope is at the lowest, cast your eyes to the future glory that awaits for you in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the hope that You have given us and that Your Spirit is carrying us along until that day of Christ's appearing. You will not leave us in our trials and our sufferings, but You will bring us through to the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank You that You have promised us, yes, even sufferings, but also glory, and that one day we will see Your face, we will be made like You, and You will wipe every tear away from our eyes. Bless us in the rest of this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.